And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. We are so glad you could join us. This morning, as Pastor Elliot begins to teach from Romans chapter 2, we'll see that a person who is a moralist sets his own standard of righteousness, even though he never achieves it. We'll also see that God's judgment of persons is based on facts. And now with his message... For today is our pastor, Robert Elliott. Well, I want you to listen to a quote as we come into our passage in Romans uh, 2, uh, 1 through 16. I want you to listen to a quote, and this is the quote. This administration has proved that it is utterly incapable of clearing out the corruption which has completely eroded it, reestablishing the confidence of the people in the morality and honesty of their government employees. The investigations which have been concluded to date have only scratched the surface. For every case which is exposed, there are 10 which are successfully covered up, and even then, this administration will go down in history as the scandal-a-day administration. It is typical of the moral standards of the administration that when they are caught red-handed with payoff money in their bank accounts, the best defense they can give us is that they won the daily double. A new class of royalty has been created in the United States, and its princes of privileges and payoffs included the racketeers who get concessions, the insiders who get favored treatment on government contracts, the influence peddlers with their leg to the White House, the government employee who uses his position to feather his nest. The great tragedy, however, is not that corruption exists, but that it is defended and condoned by the president and other high administration officials. We have had corruption defended by those in high places. If they won't recognize or admit that corruption exists, how can we expect them to clear it up? End of quote. Do you know who said that? Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon said that of the Truman administration that preceded his. 1956, Richard Nixon made those allegations and evaluations. Richard Milhouse Nixon. This is an example of Romans chapter 2, verse 1, which I would like to read with you at this time, Romans 2, 1. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Just as we would properly conclude that then-Senator Nixon condemned himself when he judged then-President Truman, the Jews condemned themselves when they judged the Gentiles' failure to keep the whole law of God. Verse 1 again, Therefore you, Jews, are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, that is Gentiles, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. So here's the deal. When we look at someone else and want to judge them and point the finger at their sin, three fingers of our own are pointed right back at us. When we want to point out someone else's sin, the fact is that three of our own fingers point right back to our own sin. This sermon is titled, Three Principles of God's Judgment. 
And the fact was and is that Jews and Gentiles alike are unable to keep 100% of God's law 100% of the time. No one can keep all of God's law all of the time. The people being addressed in these first 16 verses of chapter 2, we might call moralists. They were Jewish moralists back then, but we have moralists in the Bahamas today. Let me define the term. A moralist is a person who picks his own standard for righteousness, usually a standard that he or she thinks that they can keep, and then they point out all the faults in someone else. The problem is that the moralist who has their own homemade standard of righteousness doesn't live up to that own, their own homemade standard of righteousness. And if you want to discourage people, if you want to bring anger upon Jesus Christ, then you come across as a moralist to someone else, and you set a standard and make everybody live up to a standard that you have dictated, and you yourself don't bother to live up to it. One thing about Donald Trump running for president is that you're never short of a good soundbite. He said something that I think made every Presbyterian quake in hearing, certainly every evangelical Presbyterian, every Bible-believing and conservative Presbyterian must have been shaking their head when the Donald said, I'm a Presbyterian, I go to church often, I just don't ever recall having to ask God for forgiveness for anything. That's a moralist. Someone who sets the bar, the standard, low enough that he thinks he can keep it, that's a moralist. That's the kind of person that the original readers of these verses, that's the kind of person these verses are speaking to. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you that you've set a standard, a homemade standard of what makes you okay, and then you look at others and you hold them to that standard, but really you don't hold yourself to that standard either. The moralist. So what we're noticing here in this these verses is that the Jew is no further ahead than the Gentile because they both were condemned before God because they both were not holy by God's measurement and as detected by God's perfect law. And so what then Senator and soon then to become President Nixon proved by his own remarks that we may may prove as moralists if we are moralists ourselves. For instance, do you hold anyone to a moral standard that you yourself do not attain to? Maybe your spouse. If she was just more loving, if she was just more of an encourager, if she just listened to me, do you love her? Do you encourage her? Do you listen to her? Or maybe your children. Children are to obey. Children are to submit. Children are just to get along with each other. Then your kids see that you don't obey the government, you don't obey the Bible, you don't submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you don't get along with people you work with or worship with. Or maybe politicians. You know, they ought to tell the truth. Do you tell the truth? They ought to be unselfish. They ought to legislate for the Bahamians and not for themselves. Do you ever self-serve? They ought to lead well. They ought to step up and lead well. Do you step up and lead well in 
your spiritual responsibilities. I could go down the run. Pastors, friends here in the church family, employees, employers, do we hold others at arm's length away from us at a certain standard that we've created that we ourselves, if the truth be known, don't live up to and not even close? There are three principles in these verses that uh, pertain and explain God's judgment. Three principles pertaining to God's judgment in verses 2 through 16. I want to overview the three principles very quickly and then get to them one by one. The first principle, God's judgment is based on facts. That's verses 2 to 5. The second principle, God's judgment is according to deeds. Verses 6 to 10. And the last principle, three, God's judgment is impartial. So we're going to see that God's judgment is based on facts, God's judgment is according to deeds, and God's judgment is impartial. Now let's consider principle one concerning God's judgment, that God's judgment is based on facts. Uh, Verses two to five of our text. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the first principle, family, is that God's judgment is based on facts. I wonder, has it ever occurred to you that since God is present everywhere, and since God knows everything that there is to know, therefore there will be no circumstantial evidence in God's court in the future? When people are brought before Jesus, there will be no need to call a witness for the judge Jesus to learn something circumstantial about the person on trial. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God judges on the facts. No character witnesses will be called to the lost person's trial at the great white throne judgment before Jesus the judge. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning, this is Pastor Nicholas, another edition of Youth Talk. And today we want to continue on our series, More Than a Hashtag. And last week we talked about how we need to do something. And we talked about how you can do all of these different um, online, social media campaigns and raise awareness, but we need to also do something. And one of the first that we want to look at over these next couple of weeks and which is the base of what we want to look at is Micah 6, 8. It says, Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. And that is the basis of as we consider and we looked at more than a hashtag that we need to recognize that we're more than just what we are in social media and we are more than just what we you know, do in a sense of coming to church, but we need to actually get involved and do things. And today we want to look at love mercy. You know, when we consider mercy, you know, we consider how God was gracious and merciful toward us. And we consider 
how so many times in life, you know, people have shown us mercy. And today we want to look at how much mercy Jesus Christ himself showed. And our, our passage of scripture this morning is Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. And it goes to verse 50. And we want to look at this and probably it'll take us about two weeks to really unpack this. But let's, let's start off and look at it at verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And we know that the one of the Pharisees invited him is Jesus to eat with him. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house. She brought a jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said of himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told them. Turn to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is the man who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Like I said, as we consider this passage and we saw it verse 36, we see Again, a Pharisee invites Jesus to come and recline the table. And a woman in the town. And this is very key as we consider verse 37, a woman. Because in those days, a woman would not be a person to come in and do these things. As we think of this, this is a sinful woman. Understood who Jesus was. She knew he had the power to forgive sin. And he was loving and merciful to her. You see, when the woman learned that Jesus was at the house of Simon the Pharisee, she gathered all her courage and went to find him. Despite the fact that the house was full of men who were hardly known for being merciful, let alone accepting as someone with her reputation, a prostitute. In the eyes of these men, the fact that she had the nerve to show up to the house, uninvited, confirmed their opinion that she was not a respectable woman. You see, she was willing to do whatever it was to sit at Jesus' feet, to wash his feet. And I want you to think about this because when we consider feet, feet are dirty. You know, feet were, and we consider what Jesus had been doing and, you know, probably different things that, different travels that may take him through, you know, his feet probably weren't in the best condition. But here it is, this woman doesn't care. She wants to sit at the feet of Jesus. She wants to um, just, you know, kiss them and clean them. In fact, as, as the, the passage says that they didn't even offer water to wash the feet, but she's willing to cry with her tears and wipe his feet. And anoint them in perfume. You know, when we consider this, you know, we see exactly 
just as we are in today's world, we are a world that needs the mercy, the same mercy of that day. Because we live in a culture today where so many things are, we look around and we are living in a sinful world, a world that's messed up, a world that's full of sinners and people who are messed up in all sorts of different things. And when we consider this as the Pharisee invite them in a home, I challenge us even as Christians, what are we doing? How are we helping those that are around us who we know are living a life of sin? Are we just pushing them away? Are we showing mercy Say, why don't you come into my house? Why don't we have a talk? Why don't we go to Starbucks? Why don't we have lunch together? What are we doing? And I think even as a young person listening to this broadcast, you know, you, we know people even in our own schools who are, are doing things that we know is wrong. And the question is, and I know there's a fine line of, you know, how much we let them come in because Jesus is different than us. Jesus was a perfect being. He didn't sin. But I think that we need to understand that we can look at this in, in a sense of going to a public place with a person and talking to them. Invite them to a youth group. Invite them to church. But the reality is that, first of all, we need to understand the young person that we need to show Christ to them first. Because we know that even in our own world today, people are judgmental. People will look down on people just as the Pharisees were doing. They were looking down on this woman and saying, what is she doing? How, why is she even in this house? Why, why is she coming here who is, has this reputation of being a sinner? What makes her think that she could come in this house today and to be at the feet of Jesus? But I think that just like the Pharisee, we are no different sometimes because we ourselves sometimes forget the whole purpose. We are so distracted by the things around us. Even for us who come to church, we are so distracted by people in the church that we miss Jesus. We miss why we're there. We miss that we're not there for the people in the church, but we're here to worship a great and awesome God. So I challenge you, as you consider this, that we would show mercy to people, that we would recognize that we need to let people, and we need to show love to people. And we will pick up next time and continue in this passage of Scripture to just show how merciful our God truly is. This is Pastor Nicholas in edition of Utah. And now, today's ministry spotlight. This morning, I'm having a time of fellowship with Dr. Stephen Lewis, my friend and partner in the gospel. And uh, Dr. Lewis serves as the president of Rocky Mountain Bible College and Seminary. Before we get into our topic, uh, Dr. Lewis, could you help a listener know how they could uh, learn more about the Bible College and Seminary, like a website? Or- sure, that's no problem. Our website is uh, rmbcrockymountainbiblecollege.edu. Uh, there we have catalogs, we have other, you know, all of our other engaging things that are there to tell you about our school. Wonderful. Appreciate that. Um, let's talk today about the church, and I don't mean a local church assembly. I mean the church. I mean the collection, the um, aggregate of all born-again believers all around the globe, the church. Could you please speak to what you feel is the importance of the church? Well, one of the things to understand is on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the church was formed by the 
by the uh, baptism of the Spirit that places all into the body of Christ. He calls that his church, the called out ones, the assembly of believers. And one of the most amazing things that I've discovered is, is that no matter where I go in this world, I find those that are believers in Jesus Christ, no matter what their denominational background, no matter what they have, no matter what differences there may be, we're still all in that one body of Christ, the church. And the most amazing amazing part of it is, is that if there's a message I would, if I could translate it into all the languages, which I could not, I would say we are, we don't go to church. We are the church. We say, are the body of Christ. Please say that again. We are. We don't just go to a church. We are the church, the body of Christ. So that's really the most important thing to realize. And when you go to other countries and you meet believers, it's really a, a refreshing thing for me anyway. When I go, I was asked to preach a couple times at a Methodist church in Singapore. Uh, everyone had their shoes off had, and their stocking feet. And thankful I wore really nice socks that day. <laughs> and I was able to preach in that congregation. I preached in a bit of the largest Pentecostal church in Trinidad, uh, on, in Carape. Great people who love the Lord. You know, and I preach in churches all over, and I find that they're the same in the world as the body of Christ. And what makes it amazing is, is that they all have a, have a unique way of expressing that love and fellowship that they enjoy that to me is invigorating. When my friends in the Middle East, when they have worship, it's just a, a, a totally different way of experiencing that and their prayers. And when I come to the Bahamas, the worship that I've experienced here in these churches is, is just great worship. But we celebrate the same thing, the risen Savior, the salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and there's no other way. And those, though there may be a lot of other differences, I could not read the Arabic Bible. They could not read my English Bible. And yet, as we go through it, the same inspired word that's been translated into the vernacular of those people that are reading it. And that is extraordinary. And when we begin to see the universality, not that we all meet, that we're not talking about this idea of being an ecumenical movement where we all compromise down to the lowest common denominator. This is a sense of mutual respect love and care for one another, regardless of some differences and some of those uniquenesses that make us special are also that which causes us to understand that the body of Christ exists throughout the world. And in places where we thought, well, it couldn't exist there, under persecution or under closed doors, we find that God has made a way through. And sometimes their vitality is better than the churches that have had freedom for hundreds of years. The freedom that exists in Christ is a marvelous thing to see. Yes, uh, understanding the church, the universal church, to be vast and multifaceted and, and different flavors or, or personalities. Um, what would you say that could help someone who might be listening where they weren't raised to see it that way. They, were, they came from a situation or find themselves now in a situation where there's a competitive spirit or a suspicious spirit between a particular church and pretty well everyone else. 
You know, generally speaking, most church splits as one form occur over personalities and rarely over doctrine. The idea that we are the body of Christ and the idea of competitiveness, I would rather a church begin to see that there are far more lost people without the Savior in our community than there are churches that we may differ about and believe we're competing for. Mm. And I think uh, a colleague one time said, many churches see evangelism is fishing in the stained glass aquarium Mm -hmm. that we're all trying to look at how we can get people from other churches to join ours when all of our goals ought to be to seek and to save that which is lost to take the gospel message to those so if you're if there are 10 churches in your community don't think about trying to pull away from the others think about the hundreds if not thousands of people that exist in your area that do not know the saving grace of Jesus Christ go after them make that your goal rather than to do the other because generally speaking when someone leaves their church to join yours there's probably a reason and we like to think because we're better when it may be that they're just people where other other ones just didn't like their flavor of messing things up. So we need to be looking for the lost, bringing a new vitality to the body of Christ, not looking for others to transplant from their churches. So I see it as essential in there. It, it affects our evangelism. Example of what you just said, uh, when I was a young pastor in Canada, I was in a group of pastors at a meeting, and one of them kind of disgustedly says, well, so-and-so, and and that person wasn't in the circle, so-and-so, this pastor has all the people, and another pastor said, "What? we have five churches in our little town, what, everybody has (laughs) 5,000? Yeah. (laughs) Along those lines. So that's that's a a broadening perspective that we need, uh, to be sure. Well, um, any other thoughts on the, the church at large? Well, I think, I, I think we have to begin to think multi-generationally. I think we have to think of how do we disciple those of all age groups. Probably for me, uh, though I don't have the time I had once to spend with youth and with children, that's probably a section of our society that's overlooked greatly. Well, we'll disciple them when they go to college, maybe too late. If you can begin discipling boys and girls, not just into saving faith, but also to walk with them, we have a better chance of them working through and being discipled at that young age than we do as they get older. And evangelism with children, the younger you go, the more open they are to the message of Jesus Christ. It's true. We're really grateful to God for our Tuesday night cross-trainer ministry yep. for children. And we've seen wonderful things as the Word of God has been shared and the love of Christ has been shared. Yep. Well, this is an excellent conversation that we could go on l- yes. much longer having. But uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are part as believers of something huge. that we are part of the body and the bride of Christ worldwide, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in various countries of the world, and that one day around the throne of Jesus Christ in heaven, every tribe, every tongue, every people group will be represented. And so thank you for that, Lord. Keep Keep our eyes high enough on the horizon to be able to see these things and uh, not to be just so constrained and narrow-sighted about our own particular assemblies, no matter how much we love them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Today, our worship service begins at 10.30 a.m. in the sanctuary located at 62 Collins Avenue. We invite you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or write us at P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a Savior. Savior.